Well, good morning, Ozark. Good morning, morning, Tuesday Tour guests. You picked an excellent day to come if you enjoy talking about sex in public. (laughs) So welcome. I'm a little bit surprised to be the one sharing these things today. I kind of assumed that I might be asked to step aside and make room for our newly minted resident expert, Doug Welch, to handle this topic. So truth is, I thought through probably a dozen ways to, to start this message, and most of them were funny. About half of them involved uh, some form of communicating the truth that orgasms are God's idea. Um, but while I did make a promise to the winds that I wanted to keep, that I would point out that God invented orgasms, and while I'm certainly not above uh, a bit of teasing toward Doug Welch, with permission, of course, I do have to be honest with you, uh, when it comes to talking about sexuality these days, I don't, I don't typically find myself in a joking mood. My first instinct isn't, it isn't to laugh and it isn't to make other people laugh. Um, that's pretty easy to do, you know, especially if you cross certain lines. I hope I haven't already crossed any. And if you do joke about such things, generally speaking, you're going to have about 95% of the room in stitches, man. It always lands. And then there's the other 5% who will be in pain. Really probably wishing they could be anywhere other than where they are. Wondering if the people sitting next to them have noticed that their palms and foreheads have started sweating. Wondering if the people around them can see the, the redness as their necks and faces flush with anger or shame or fear and that kind of pain man causing that kind of pain it just it just isn't isn't worth it isn't worth the cheap laugh you know i mean am i right young fellas surely you know this am i right in the dorms it just isn't worth the jokes right i'm right sex man it's crazy it's like it's potential it's potential for intense pleasure is matched only by its capacity for debilitating pain. I'm no prophet, but when I think about where we are as a culture and even where we are as as a subculture, as a church, it seems to me that one of the best words to characterize where we are today with respect to matters of gender and sexuality is just, just a simple word, confused. We're just confused. And one look at the gender unicorn will show you that, man. It's just, it's It's kind of all over the place. I think our confusion shows up in the strangest of places. Our confusion shows up, you know, in our social media profiles where the gender options are now trending upwards of 50. It shows up on our news headlines and our Twitter timelines with one story after another about the extent to which some people will go to deny reality. But you don't need the headlines and you don't need the timelines to show you that we're confused. All you really need to do is to pay attention to the eyes that are staring back in yours. The eyes of a friend, the eyes of an enemy, the eyes in the mirror. Why am I the way I am? Why do I want what I want? Why do we do what we do? 
Man, I've never had a single semester where I wasn't counseling multiple students who were wrestling with same-gendered sexual attraction. I've never had a single semester where I wasn't counseling multiple young men through what feels like an addiction to pornography. And we know it's the ladies too. Let me just acknowledge it's the ladies too. And for you, there's this added sense of like, if a guy says, oh, I've just been looking at porn, it's like, we, we, it's not good and we wanna help you through that. But if a, if a lady says, man, I've just been, I've been struggling with looking at porn, it's like, really? So let's get treated extra weird. There's this additional shame that gets heaped on you. I've never had a single semester where I wasn't counseling multiple couples as they're trying to figure out like, so what are the proper sexual boundaries? How can we identify what those are and maintain those things? You know, we're just, it's just, it's hard and it's, it's a struggle, it's confusing. And so for the next three weeks, we're gonna talk about sexuality. It's just like Logan said, he set it up great. It's not like a new series. The other day, Beth called it a sub-series. It's like this portion within this greater series, the pursuit of wisdom. And we laid out the, you know, the, the basics of wisdom. God is good, sin is stupid, and uh, you gotta walk in wisdom because it's worth it. And so now we're gonna run different issues through that grid. And so keeping that framework in place here in a couple of weeks, Randy and Julie Garris are going to, um, they're gonna share some, well, they're gonna, I don't know how to say this. They're gonna share some practical, t- I almost said how-to. It's not how-to. They're gonna share some, <laughs> some wisdom on you know, how to engage this, this sexual dimension of our lives. And in a couple weeks, or next week rather, Carolyn Trogi is gonna come and talk to us about, about some of the ways uh, people and, and families and societies break down when we reject God's design. But today, what we're gonna focus on is that, is that original design for sexuality, a theology of sexuality. What is a theology of sexuality? What is a biblical theology of sexuality? That's the question we're gonna try to answer today. You know, and anytime you, you talk about humanity, a doctrine of humanity or a theology of something having to do with us, there's this framework you gotta keep in place that's always there in the Bible that we're created in God's image, we've been fallen into sin and we can be redeemed in Christ. So it's like creation, fall, redemption provides the framework for any questions such as this. And we're not talking about all of these things today. We're not talking about, man, I, we don't have time to talk about being redeemed in our sexuality. And that, that's what I do with my body and, and also how I love those who have bodies that, that sort of move them in other ways. We, we could talk all day about that. We're not talking about that. We're not talking today about, about the nature of the fallenness and the way in which the original design has been corrupted. We're just, we're just going to try to present the design, the original purpose of this whole thing. We're creating God's image as sexual creatures. What does that mean? Christopher Ewan, in a, in a pretty good little book that he recently wrote called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, describes what he calls holy sexuality as chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage. Yeah, it's kind of his six words, his framework for biblical sexuality. And that honestly pretty well sums up the, the, the guardrails or the guidelines for sexual expression in the scripture. And I, I think this is a really helpful description of a biblical sexual ethic, but that we're going one step deeper. Like that's great and wonderful, but the question we're asking is why? So chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage, that's the consistent teaching of scripture. But why, like what's the deeper purpose for this? Maybe you know what the Bible teaches and maybe you're happy to submit yourself to the authority of scripture. And if so, then praise God and good job. But I think there's a certain point where we wanna say, I just, I don't necessarily know why the Bible says what it says. I can tell you what it tells us not to do, but I don't know how to pull it together in light of what it tells us these things are for. And so what we're gonna try to do is to see what these things are for. We're gonna read some texts that are pretty foundational for such things. I'm going to read a handful of texts here in just a second, uh, really without much commentary at all. And it's, it's, it's a decent portion of text. I'm not gonna have you stand up or anything, but I do want you to kind of enter into your, into your mind, into a, a spirit of listening to scripture. As we look at some of these texts that talk about and set the framework for our understanding of sexuality, I'm gonna start in Genesis 1. 
verses 26 through 28. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over all the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Skip ahead just a little bit to the book of Hosea. The prophet talks about the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. God talks about this relationship as indicating his with his people. And after a section where God talks about his judgment on his people for her sin, he says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband. You will no longer call me my master. Hosea 3 verse 1 says, The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. We can't leave the Old Testament before flipping back to Genesis chapter 2. And the story of what occurs after the initial creation of human beings, you pick it up in verse 18, says, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. You will find sprinkles of this text in various places in the New Testament. For instance, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Then in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You kind of can't tell if you don't know the imagery. He's talking about the church. Those are the relevant texts 
And I hate to leave out so much. Man, it's hard to cut. You know, I didn't even quote Jesus' affirmation of the Genesis accounts of marriage. I didn't talk about Song of Songs at all. Lord knows that has a lot to say on these matters, but these are going to have to do. Now, you may notice that we span the book. You start in Genesis at the very beginning, and you move your way to Revelation at the very end. I think that's probably important. You have a wedding in the beginning, and you have a wedding at the end. And I'm actually working on a book myself. I've got a cover for it and a working title, but I need a little bit of help. Maybe you guys can help me. I'll show you what I'm working on so far. So take a look at this. This is kind of what I'm thinking. We'll see where we... Um... It's like... You can do between two weddings, but that's a little bit boring. It's like I thought maybe between two bedposts, but that's awkward. <laughs> between two dresses is a little one-sided. Uh, between two county clerks, you know, but that's like not very interesting. I'm thinking about writing it just for the Ozark community. So here's my working title, Between Two Awkward Kisses, right? <laughs> Our transition from semester one to semester two. <laughs> that's what we're working with. So I do want to ask the question, though, what is the point of these texts from Genesis, from Hosea, from Ephesians, and from Revelation? And what is the nature in which they maybe summarize for us all the things that go between? I'm obviously not going to try to exegete all these passages. More so, I just kind of want to look through them and, and pull out, if we can, what truth is revealed in various ways in each of them. So far as I can tell, here's the heart of the matter. Here, here's, here's, I think, a theology of sexuality. Our sexuality is designed to display God's love for his people. I really think it's a fairly simple truth. Now, I do need to say, part of what's difficult about this truth is you could understand it, but if you try to separate it from the rest of its biblical context, it's going to seem strange to you. I had to like cut the whole first half, uh, the whole, a whole half of my first plan for this sermon. I have to do it on a podcast later on where we talk about all of the supporting truths that make sense of this one, but we don't have time to do everything today and that's fine. We're just gonna try to understand this central truth. The heart of it is right there in the middle of the statement. Designed to display. Everybody say designed, designed. To, display. to display. If you understand the depth of that idea, then you will be able to begin making sense of your sexuality. Our sexuality is designed to display something very specific, God's love for his people. You ever notice that truth is more powerful on display? You can tell somebody something, but if you can show them, then like telling them has a little bit more power to it. You've actually seen that from this stage really all semester long. Damien kicks us off with this sermon on God is good, and he showed us a bunch of videos of cute babies. Do you remember that? I mean, it's been a while. And then after that, Shane came up here and he preached about how sin is stupid. And he, he showed us that little, little thing with the marbles that go back and forth. And he actually pulled Hunter up here and played a game of Jenga. Because you can say that one small sin has a large impact. Or you can show the game of Jenga and it just has a little bit more punch to it, a little bit more power to it, you know. Dewell came up here and he was talking about wisdom. And he was not just saying don't do dumb, dumb things, but he actually showed us some pictures of people doing dumb things. Do you remember that? Here's my favorite one. I just think we need to look at this again. I think that's a young, a young Brian and Justin out there. Like that's, that's alumni hall 25 years ago, you know? Like you live and learn, I guess. People do some dumb things and you can say that or you can show it. And when you show it, it actually has a little bit more to it. Even Logan and, and Christian, Logan comes up and he gives us a picture of what is the quintessential Logan Kerrigan symbol, his hair, of course. And then Christian didn't show us a picture because the pictures probably aren't G-rated, but he told us a story and painted pictures with words of the time when he didn't just say, I was dumb when I was young. He talked about building a, a slide into a pool from the upper deck of his friend's house. And so you have these pictures that really kind of help us understand the truth. There's a reason why kids do show and tell 
as opposed to tell and repeat because when you can see it, it just resonates at a deeper level. And I think this urge to display things is rooted in our source. It's Genesis 1, we're created in God's image. And whatever else that may mean, what it definitely means is that God made us like him so that we could show the world and each other what he's like. We're designed to mirror him, to display his glory. Everything about us is designed to express some truth about God. So, so we, we engage in community and friendship. Why? Because God is triune. We, we make art and, and music. Why? Because God is beautiful and creative. We work. Why? Because God works. He's inventive. He's a cultivator. We play sports. Why? Because God likes to work with other teammates and also because God is, is, is inclined toward victory. We're able to learn. Why are we able to learn? Because God is endlessly fascinating. So everything about us points to something true about him. You get the point. And notice that right there at the beginning, we find sexual differentiation, male and female. Look again at Genesis chapter one, verse 27. You kind of got to look at it in order. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you notice there's three lines to this basic statement. You have the top line is kind of laying it out. God created mankind, all of us in his image. And then you have the next line that kind of looks like the same thing, right? It's just repeating the first line and it is, but it changes the order. Why? To match the third line. So lines two and three unpack for us line one. So God created us in his own image. What does that mean? Well, if you look at the very end, you notice it goes him, then them. So there's a singularity to the human family, but there's also a plurality. We are one, but we are many. And if you back up, you realize the many is not just general, it's male and female, which is designed to parallel the phrase, the image of God. The image of God right there on the second line is intentionally aligned with male and female right there on that third line to show the unbreakable link between our sexual differentiation and our calling to show what God is like. Well, what is going on here? Like, what is, what is this? Like, what is Genesis saying? It kind of helps if you back up a little bit and you notice that in Genesis 1, it's just kind of shot through with these complementary pairs of, of different things that work together. So you have light and darkness, night and day, fish and fowl, waters above from waters below. You have these pairs of things that are different and yet they function together. That, that's kind of the idea. Like our world only works when opposites work together. You can see words on a page because the page is light and the words are dark. You can hear my voice now because everybody else is being silent. Can you imagine a world where there was only noise and never silence? Or only silence and never noise? Can you imagine a world where there was only emotion and never logic? Or only logic and never emotion? No, like this is the way our world was made. Different things work together in harmony. That's the idea. And there's two pairs in Genesis 1 that stand out above the rest. One is right there at the start. God created the heavens and the earth. So you have the heavens and the earth. And then male and female is at the end of chapter 1, is the pinnacle of this initial creation. And in Genesis 2, male and female come together as one. The same can finally be said of heaven and earth by the time we get to the end of the book of Revelation. And could it be that these two pairs, the link between these two pairs is more than just accidental? Could there be something about the fact that male and female are designed to come together in the peaceful harmony in such a way that increases joy and produces life? Could there be something to this? Could there be something to the idea that sexuality, that marriage is designed to depict the whole story all at once? So he doesn't just tell and repeat, he shows and tells that it symbolizes to the world and announces to us that though God in heaven is different from us, he loves us and he does so in such a way 
He wants to be joined together in such a way that joy is increased and new life is made. I'm not sure if we get the whole picture from Genesis alone, which is why I'm glad the Bible continues. I'm glad God chose marriage to depict his love for Israel. I'm glad he leaned on the same symbol to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. I'm I'm glad Song of Songs has always been interpreted on two levels, even if both are a little bit awkward, to be honest. I'm glad for Hosea. I'm so thankful for Hosea. I'm sure it wasn't fun to be married to Gomer, but I don't know if I would have understood it without him. The point that our sexuality is designed to display God's love for his people. It doesn't tell us everything we need to know about God, not even close, but it tells us something we can't live without. Do you ever wonder, like, how can you believe that God actually loves you? He's just so different than me. Like he's, he's, I can't see him for one thing. He's like God. I'm like, by definition, not God. We're so different. He's so, he's so perfect. I'm so undeserving. I'm so unworthy. I'm so busted up. How in the world could, could God love me? And God's going, yeah, like I gave you sexuality so that you would be able to see that this is in fact a true thing. I know this is kind of odd to think about, but God's deep love for us is actually the reason why we want to turn down the lights, lose the fig leaves, and do otherwise incredibly embarrassing things with our body. It's why we find ourselves driven in the way we find ourselves driven. And I just want to acknowledge these are some of the strangest things I've ever said from a pulpit. (laughs) Well, let's just continue the weird. Like, (laughs) the pulpit is never an appropriate place for conjugal union. I think on this we all agree. But the marriage bed is indeed a pulpit of sorts. We are living, breathing, kissing, copulating sermons. Truth on display. This does explain some of the more interesting details, like the intensity of the pleasure associated with sex, like the fact that this is still the only way, literally the only way to make another human life. Again, God loves those who are similar but different in such a way that intensifies joy and increases life. Or think about the covenant. So in the covenant, God exclusively loves Israel, but his exclusive love for Israel is designed to eventually be extended for the blessing of this relationship to be extended to all the other peoples. So so we partner up one with one, and this relationship is exclusive in very important ways, but it's not designed for itself. It's designed to extend blessing from within this union to all of those around, family, community, world. That's kind of the idea. That's how it works. This also explains why some of the boundaries are where they are. Adultery is out because God's love is faithful. Polygamy is out because God's love is appropriately exclusive. Divorce is out because God's love is permanent. Same-gendered sex is out because God doesn't just love another version of himself. He loves something that is similar to him but different. Premarital sexual intercourse and activity is out because the joys of intimacy are designed to be reserved for the safe and selfless context of covenant commitment. It explains all of it. Man, I hope you do realize too, I hope, I hope you realize that this means that all forms of sexual holiness witness to the truth of marriage, all forms. You display the glory of God's love through your faithfulness in marriage and through your chastity in singleness. And in our culture, it's the latter that has a little bit more power, a little bit more purchase. It's not strange for, for a person to desire marriage. It's strange for a person, an adult, to not have sex because an old book tells them not to. Wait till you get out of here. Maintain chastity and singleness and and watch the opportunities that afford you to tell the truth. Wait, like you'll only date me if I don't want to have sex with you? Seriously? Wait, like 
hold on, so you want to do this. Your body, your desires are inclined in this direction, but you're not going to give in to them because of like religion? What, why? This is strange to the world we live in. You really follow rules in an ancient book? You're a grown-up now. Do what you want. No, why? And the answer is because my body and all of its glorious sexuality is designed to display something bigger than me. That's why. That's why. See, I want to acknowledge something that you may, that I may have unintentionally implied this morning. I got a lot of worries about this morning. This is one of them. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's great for you, straight man with a lovely wife. (laughs) I'm not you. Maybe this is what you're saying right now. I'm not you. I'm gay or I'm a lesbian or I'm not even sure what I am or I'm straight, but you see this finger? No ring. Guess I miss out. And man, if that's what you're thinking, then you are not understanding what I'm saying. It's probably not your fault. It's probably a communication failure on my part. So let me do everything I can to make myself incredibly clear. I am not saying that straight people or married people have a unique access to God's love. That's impossible. You know that's impossible because if your theology suggests that Jesus missed out on a full life, there's something wrong with your theology. If your theology suggests that Jesus didn't have full access to the love of God, there's something wrong with your understanding of these things. No way, like Jesus gives the lie to that whole thing. We participate in the sign in different ways, but the whole point of the sign is that anyone can participate in the signified. That's the idea. But we have a hard time hearing this because, man, we've idolized sex. We've idolized marriage as if the pinnacle of love may be found here. This is literally the spot. Think about this during worship. This is literally the spot where my wife and I exchanged our vows over 15 years ago, right here on this stage. But you might be confused by the beautiful event called the wedding to think that this is the pinnacle of love. The pinnacle of love is not when a young man and a young woman march down the aisle and exchange vows and rings and a kiss to commit their lives to one another forever. The pinnacle of love is not a few years later when that same two people now become one, welcome into this world, the child that is the fruit of their oneness. The pinnacle of love is not even 75 years later when we all clap for the couple that's still married because they've been married longer than anybody else in the room. And we just wanna say props to you because you not only got married, but you stuck it out for the better part of a century. That is not the pinnacle of love. This is just a shadow. It's a beautiful shadow, but it's a shadow of a greater reality. When David says in Psalm 63, your steadfast love is better than life, he wasn't talking about marriage. 1 John 3, 16 does not say, this is how we know what love is. Husband did the dishes and wife made him some coffee. (laughs) Paul does not say in Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate toward one another, forgiving each other, just as newlyweds do after their first fight. The idea is not that marriage shows us that God loves marriage or that married people shows us that marriage is awesome. The point is that marriage shows us that God loves human beings. The Bible emphatically does not present marriage as the pinnacle of love. You know, it's funny, it's like idolizing marriage. It's like if there was this sign that said 50 miles this way to the Grand Canyon, but the sign had a picture of the canyon and the sign in the picture was so beautiful that people got more obsessed with hanging out at the sign as opposed to just driving 50 more miles and seeing the canyon itself. That's the kind of situation that we're in when we idolize these things. Because the pinnacle of love is when the second person of the Trinity took on flesh, came down here to minister to the broken and sinful, promised our salvation and effected the same by dying on the cross in our place as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and overcame sin and Satan and death three days later when he was raised from the grave in victory over all of the forces that hold us in bondage so that every single one of us might be reconciled back to the God who loves us. That is the pinnacle of love. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son into the world that we might live through the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Behold what great love the Father has lavished on us that we, we should be called children of God and that is what we are. That is the pinnacle of love. And that is an opportunity that is available to every person in the world. His faithful love is better than life and it's offered to you. And if you forget that, open your eyes. Man, if you forget that, then pay attention. Look around you and take notice of the signs that God has given you every direction you look. You know, I wrestled, I wrestled with not having much today by way of illustrations, but I rested in the fact that the whole point is that we are the illustration. Look at the Scots, look at the Proctors, look at the DeWelts, look at the Garrises. Shoot, look at the Welches or the Schaefers. The point isn't, look how good they are at all of this already. The point is, no, like it's not, even, it's not because they're perfect, any of them. And it's not actually having anything to do with the quality of their marriage per se. It is the very fact that they come together in such a way that has the potential not only to increase joy, but the unmatched ability to produce and sustain new life. This fact serves as a demonstration for us that this story about a God's love who we cannot see is no less true for its invisibility, no less real because we sometimes doubt it. Neither marriage nor singleness has an exclusive claim on participating in God's love, but in both we are called to display that love. So whether you are married or single, whether you consider yourself gay, straight, bi, or confused. Your sexual holiness announces a future when God will bring heaven to earth and Christ will be united with his church in the only consummation properly followed by the words that taught us to hope when we were children. And they lived happily ever after. And in the meantime, God still extends his life-giving love to those who are not like him. So may our sexuality sing this song strained though our voices may sometimes be. May our bodies bear witness to this story as per their design. And albeit finding strength in weakness, may our lives display this truth. It seems it's time to pray, but we want to do so in something of a unique way. We wanna pray over anyone in the room who may be experiencing the effects of any kind of sexual brokenness. Now here in just a minute, I'm going to step off the stage, walk down front. I'm just gonna stand down here front. And if any of you wanna come down here as a way of saying something's going on or something has happened and I just need to be prayed over. This is not a place for judgment. We're not taking any lists or writing anything down. This is a place where you in just a few moments, we'll be prayed over. So if you want to come down here and say, yeah, like whether on behalf of yourself or if you want to come down to represent somebody else in our Ozark community that you know probably needs to come down, but isn't at a point where they can. You just come on down here. Maybe this is you've given in to certain types of sexual desires that you know are not holy. Maybe this is you've gone too far with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe this is a pornography issue that you thought you had taken care of, but it wasn't as 
clean and clear as you thought or that you actually haven't come clean on before. Maybe it's not something you did. Maybe it's something somebody did to you. Maybe you wanna come down here as a way of saying, I just need to acknowledge before my community that something has happened to me that has caused these things to be uniquely difficult for me to work my way through. I just need to be prayed for. Whatever it is, no matter if two or 20 come, you are welcome to come as we sing.